I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 4. As you do so, comment on the psalm that we just sang. It definitely ties into the sermon. We sing of the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. And then that person is pictured as a tree that's planted with deep roots by a source of water. And the result is that it is verdant, it's bearing fruit. And there is an obvious relationship there. The one who, in faith, regularly draws upon, meditates upon the truth of God and what he has revealed is the one who experiences stability, fruitfulness, productivity. And conversely, the person who does not make these things their meditation experiences instability. They are like the chaff that blows away. Now, of course, at times, it doesn't seem like that right away. The righteous person sometimes seems not to be prospering because we're looking at the outward. We're not looking at the way that the Lord is, in fact, removing Dead branches, pride, self-dependence, etc., and actually making them prosper spiritually, and definitely in the age to come, they are the ones who will prosper. Now, how does that tie in tonight? We are in a series that we began just last week on the thought life of disciples, looking at some of what the Bible has to say about that. And last week, we saw that there is a real spiritual battle being raged over the human mind, ours included. We are not simply on the offensive for others to go out and convince them of truths, but we are actually the ones who are being fought over. And if we're not mindful of that, then we are not on guard. Now this evening, we turn our attention to what will be the key text for several weeks, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's give our attention to the word. And notice, by the way, if you're using the bulletin, Our focus is, this is my error, actually verses 6 through 9. Beginning at verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's with us now, but let's ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the privilege of receiving your word. We thank you for not only preserving it, but preserving us to this day. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, for the glory of Christ, would work even now. Form our hearts to be receptive, kindle faith, Strengthen us to respond. Heavenly Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we spend the next several weeks drilling down into the specific content of our thoughts described here, truth, 
purity, justice, etc. This evening we take a moment to consider the context and really some of why we do this. Why do we engage in a battle for the mind? And why do we think about all of these things described here? And if nothing else, the Lord would have you go away tonight understanding that in Christ, the purpose is much more than simply to acquire information. I trust we all understand that and would acknowledge it. The purpose of having truth and the opportunity to think on it is more than just growing in knowledge, but in intimacy, that true knowledge, which is service to the Lord and communion with him. And yet, every day, my life, and probably yours, reflects the disconnect to one extent or another between those things, between knowledge and practice. Now look at the context here in verses 6 and 7. Paul observes a certain connection between prayer and peace. Where there is prayer, ordinarily, the Holy Spirit brings peace. And we saw last week in the morning some of the reasons why that is. As we are brought back to a sense of trust, the Lord is in control. He has a purpose, and this is not my only life. And here, the Lord, through Paul, is making another important connection the connection between meditation, imitation, and then peace. Peace is also in the view here. In verses 8 and 9, you see ultimately it leads to the peace of God shall be with you. And so there is again a connection between what we think about, how we live, and then the peace that we experience. And so this evening, through this passage, receive it as from the Lord. To the extent I say any true thing, the Holy Spirit this evening is making two appeals to you. He appeals to you first to meditation and then to imitation in order that you might participate, participation in the peace of God. And it's each of these three that we're going to look at in particular. These will serve as our three main headings. Now look at me at verse 8 and you'll see the essence of the first appeal. The apostle's first appeal boils down to a single verb. That verb, think. Think about these things. And that sounds easy enough. Think about these things. In fact, the fact that it comes after other things, and it's just one word, and it's a familiar word, could tempt us to just pass by it, not to think enough about what it means to think. But here, even in the context, the apostle is doing something to draw your attention to the importance of it. You see, each of those foregoing words, truth, whatever is just, noble, they go chugging past like a train, and then at the end, the caboose, you've got the verb. The verb comes at the end. In the time when this epistle was written, there was not bold or highlighting or underscoring in writing. In fact, there weren't even lowercase and capitals as we know them. And so the apostle couldn't just write the verb in capitals. Everything was in capitals. So what did they do? Well, they used common rhetorical devices, and the Holy Spirit works through ordinary human speech to communicate. And this was a common rhetorical device. You take all of these other words, and you stack them and stack them and stack them, and leave people wondering, what is the verb going to be? And that draws attention to the verb. 
In Arabian Nights, the classic tales, there is a prince who wants to make an impression upon the sultan. He wants to have the sultan's daughter's hand in marriage. So what does he do? Before going in to meet the sultan, he sends in first his soldiers, all his servants, his camels, everything, so that the sultan gathers whoever is coming after this is very important. This is a device that you will encounter again and again in the epistles. Stacking of all of the adjectives and nouns before you get to the verb. And that's the Holy Spirit to you saying, pay attention, what follows is important. Now the word think here, it's certainly more than trivial or unplanned awareness about a thing. A lot of our thoughts are those thoughts. And I will concede that some of our most random thoughts can be edifying. We can have shower thoughts that are perfectly wonderful. But too often, I would suggest, the Christian deals incidentally with thinking. Not all of us, but often it's the case, probably for every one of us, that rather than thinking intentionally, even setting aside time to think about a specific thing, we take thoughts as they come to us. But is that the word here? Is that what is intended? The word that the apostle uses is the same from which we derive our English word, logic. And the word, according to the foremost authority on the Greek language currently, says that it means, quote, to give careful thought to a matter, to think about, consider, to ponder, to let one's mind dwell upon a thing. That's what you are being called to here. When he says, think on truth, Think on what is noble. Think on what is commendable, just, lovely. Give deliberate attention. Now, of course, that is exactly, I trust, I hope, what is happening right now, what happens in the context of preaching and sermons, deliberate attention. But certainly the apostle has in mind something that goes beyond simply Sunday for an hour or two to give deliberate thought to these things. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, we find an instance of this same word where it says that before Abraham offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice, it says, and he pondered, but it's the same term, he pondered the power of God to raise the dead. Think how carefully he was thinking through what he was being asked to do. God calls us with deliberate intensity to dwell upon each of these things described here. Now, what are these things? What are we called to dwell upon? As I mentioned, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we'll look at each of the adjectives described here. But this evening, I invite you to primarily notice how they are concluded with two, it's called a subjunctive, an if phrase, If there is anything excellent, if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. And both of those terms have to do with moral excellence. And that kind of governs when we say, think on whatever is lovely. It's not simply, I heard some music and I found it pleasing to my subjective taste, but somebody else might not like it. But he's really focusing on that which is lovely in terms of pleasing God morally and spiritually. Now we'll come to that I think that that can be pleasing to God morally and spiritually as well. 
But here, what you're being called to think about is whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy in the sight of God. And notice that it says, if there is anything. I'm persuaded that means that we can and should open our eyes to the goodness that God has preserved all throughout the world, not only in the church, but often in the example of unbelievers. The Lord, in his great kindness, causes people to live far above what their depravity would suggest. The beauty that we find in art and music, the justice that is sometimes enacted by secular people, that we look outside and we appreciate everywhere that it occurs and we acknowledge it as from the Lord. But within the context of Philippians chapter 2 through 4, it is overwhelmingly Paul's intention that our primary focus is how each of these things occurs in Christ and in those who imitate him. It is so easy, is it not, to fill our thoughts with things that come from outside of Christ and those who seek intentionally to imitate him. And so we must, according to this passage, be deliberate to do so, to structure our lives in ways to do so. I'm not saying that is easy. But then again, the scriptures say, discipline yourself unto godliness. Discipline yourself unto godliness. The word gymnasia there, it's, it's also the word from which we get gymnasium. And it has the idea of exercise, exertion. We're called to love God with all of our hearts and souls, but also with our minds. The desire to exert yourself in that way must come from love. If you lack If you think you lack mental fortitude and you're not an intellectual, I'll tell you right now, like that train that just chugs along and gets there more quickly than the Ferrari that goes and then stops just a mile in. If you'll just chug along, you can have wonderful thoughts with the Lord that lead you to deeper and deeper fellowship. The primary thing is that we do so intentionally. And the willingness, what's driving that little chugging train, is love and gratitude to Christ, believing there are beautiful things in him that I can only discover and experience by going in this path of meditation. It has to be that gratitude in the gospel that drives, that pushes the train forward. On the other hand, it can't stop there. I realize that the call to meditate can sound somewhat abstract, intellectual. And I want to be clear, I am not simply saying, or my desire would be far from complete, if this church adopted a culture of, we all read tons of books all the time, but in a lopsided way. That's not the point, meditation for its own sake. It's always towards something. Hear some of these words from King David, and you get a sense that his goal in meditating is always worshipful and is always connected to love. Psalm 119, verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Psalm 119 goes on and says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate upon your statutes. The fact that there's love there, it's not just a cold acquisition of information. 
This is eminently practical. When we desire that people would meditate, that they would think, that they become intentional dwellers upon things, it's connected in this passage to practice, to imitation. And this is our second main appeal. See what Paul says in verse 9. Second appeal in the final main heading. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, what had they learned and received and heard and seen in him? Essentially, they had seen in his life and they had heard in his teaching an encapsulation, an embodiment, a boiling down of the very kinds of things described in verse 8. In his description of who Christ is, who God the Father is, who the Holy Spirit is, their work in the world, what they've called us to, and his way, Paul's way of trying to live as Christ, they had experienced that which is true and noble and just and lovely and commendable. So when he's calling them to practice, he's calling them to put into practice what we think on. And now, again, notice what is happening here. Learned, received, heard, seen. This is another rhetorical train. Here it is, chugging along, and it makes you wonder, what is at the back? And at the back, practice. The purpose, again, I realize it's, it's simple. This is, I'm not telling you something that you can sit down and realize. But the difference here is that the Holy Spirit is calling you to act upon this, not merely to recognize it's true. He calls you, think deeply, hard about each of these things, and then labor to put it into practice, these things. Practice these things. And even the term practice here is a verb formed in such a way that it means keep doing it. Keep doing it. And you're never done in this life. And then in glory, you get to continue these things. Now, is it not often, or at least sometimes the case, that our meditations do not terminate in practice, at least in the way that we know we desire. Who here has read, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, who here has read a book on prayer and then in the following week hardly prayed? I'll put my hand up. This is representative, I'm sure. And I say that not to make light of our sin, but on the other hand, if you won't confess it, you're never going to deal with it. And the scripture doesn't call us to confession merely so that we can revel in justification. Justification is always standing at the front of the rest of the story, which is one of ongoing repentance, seeking after embodying the Lord's will for us. And it's never done. That's why it's called an upward march and it gets harder in some ways. The, harder, the more you want to fulfill what God has called us to, the more seriously you take it, the harder it's going to feel. It's like being on the treadmill and it, the coach keeps making it go up and up and up and a little bit faster. Don't expect, I speak especially to you young ones, do not, please, don't think that at some point in your 20s or 30s or 40s, your Christian life, obedience is suddenly going to get easier. It's going to, you know, it's... As long as you start on the uphill, you get to a plateau, and then it's actually downhill. Your 60s, 70s, 80s are pretty easy to be godly. 
I know some 60s and 70s and 80-year-olds who will tell me anytime I ask, it's hard to be more and more faithful. To actually live according to 60, 70, or 80 years worth of knowledge. It's like a preacher I once heard say concerning ministers, and it frightens me sometimes when I think about it. He said, how many ministers leave behind them a library that will stand up in the judgment against them? You've got all this information, but what about formation? And that means that there needs to be a proportionate drive as we consider and a humbling of ourselves before the Lord to say, God, I just realized I just learned a thing. Help me put it into practice. I'm not saying it's going to go perfectly. I'm saying that if we don't do it intentionally, there will not be progress. Say that to the youth especially. Your progress, although we fully affirm that it is the Holy Spirit who begins and finishes the work, who causes his people to persevere to the end, yet, practically speaking, his mechanism of doing so, his way of bringing you along, will be through effort. It will be through the mind disciplined to consider the faith and to walk in it. And so we're called to put this into practice The great danger, of course, is to do the opposite. And in the worst case, people show the symptoms of having become hardened, hardened to the truth. Hear what it says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. Paul there is speaking about certain imposters of the faith. 2 Timothy 3, verse 7 describes them, that they are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. They are depraved in mind and disqualified from the faith. I want to appeal to you to understand something. God works through the development of spiritual virtue as you learn. Your very understanding is affected by virtue. Where the mind is warped and twisted by habitual sin, things which should be patently obvious shall not be. No one is a computer. You don't just receive information in an objective way. But it is formed through an understanding that is spiritual. And therefore, if our hearts and minds are not set upon both these things that are described here, and the willingness to practice them, then what Romans 1 says will become true of us, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It doesn't cease to be true. We just twist it. By contrast, God is calling you to deliberately unite these. Hear this passage from Joshua 1, verse 8. Here, Joshua, the successor to Moses, is addressing the children of Israel, and they've just been given Deuteronomy, calling them to a very clear statement of what they are called to do. And it says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Meditate upon it so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Again, success to be measured ultimately in the 
view of the Lord. But if you want a successful life, and I'm speaking again predominantly to the youth here, it matters to everyone. If you want a life that is successful in the sight of the Lord, you must meditate. You must then put it into practice. The strength to do so, of course, comes purely, purely from the Holy Spirit working through faith in Christ, that he works in us both to will and to do. And the fruit of that is what then we conclude in our thinking. We realize the fruit of that is peace. That brings us back to the beginning. Remember, we saw that in the context here, first, verses 6 and 7, Paul is saying that prayer is connected to the peace of God, the experience of the peace of God. But then he says, again, imitation, coming out of meditation, results in peace. In verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. What's the connection between your thoughts, your actions, and the peace of God? How are these connected? I think you know. Anyone who has tried to walk in the way of the Lord for any amount of time realizes the instability, the doubts, the struggles that come when we set our minds more and more upon the opposite of everything described in verse 8. And conversely, the stability, the assurance, the joy that comes as we devote ourselves to walking in the way of the Lord. God is a good father. He's not going to reinforce bad behavior. And so he disciplines every child whom he loves. But on the other hand, the person who persists in high-handed resistance to meditation and imitation, they walk in the way that ultimately exposes unbelief. I want you to see one passage that speaks to this very clearly before we close. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn with me there. There is a lot going on in 1 Timothy 6, and I don't want you to get distracted by all of that. But to focus on something simple here, Paul, in the context, is speaking about people who had definitely thought a lot about wealth. They thought a lot about wealth, about getting money, getting rich. But they had not thought in such a way as to think on what is pure in terms of their motives and the use of money. They had not thought on what is noble and just and how they might acquire it. And so their meditation is all off, and that is going to lead to certain actions, and those actions are going to result in the opposite of peace. Look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This piercing is the loss of whatever peace they might have enjoyed treading the Lord's path. But then look at the opposite in verse 6. Observe the peace that results from meditating on a truth. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world. 
Here there is meditation upon a truth. We brought nothing in. We can't take anything out. And then a peace that comes through understanding that in light of God's purpose. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, to be clear, contentment is not not wanting anything. It's fine to want things. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not discontent because you are hungry. Contentment is satisfaction with whatever God has purposed for you, such that you will seek your desires in the legitimate ways that he has revealed. Covetousness, lust by that definition, is a desire that is opposed to or indifferent to the will of God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. When you are satisfied with what God would apportion to you, when you can be content in that, that now you are full. You can finally stop your endless pursuit that's devouring you. And it's founded upon this truth. You can't take any of it with you anyway. But what you can take is the spiritual treasure that comes through using what you have well. And the person who's living for and being dominated by the idol of covetousness, they don't gain anything by it long term. Their life is that quick. It's gone like chaff. Just this morning, I was speaking with somebody and mentioned how sometimes we presume that for all of eternity, we're going to identify so closely with fleeting elements of this present life. You know, that I... Pennsylvania Dutch. By the way, I really don't identify with that. Somebody else had to inform me of the fact. But think how many people take a special pride in one aspect or another. Now, my point is not to say it doesn't matter, but it is to say that billions of years from now, will that still be the core of my identity? Probably not. And likewise, wealth and the things that you get by wealth that people admire to you. They saw that you had really made something of yourself, etc. It's not going to matter. Peace, the Lord provides it out of certain actions. Those actions flow out of meditation. The meditation has to begin at faith. Lord, you have spoken. I am listening. I am your servant. So the Lord calls us tonight to not, in the coming weeks, think of this primarily in terms of what are all the facts I should know, but how do I live according to these things? And that's hard. Why don't we ask him to help us even now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us and for inviting us as your image bearers to put on Christ, to be renewed in the inner man, to be washed and cleansed through the waters of the word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would cleanse us from every evil thought, Oh, Heavenly Father, if you were to call before our minds again every impure thing, every false thing that we've thought, even in the past month, which one of us would be free? You deserve that we should seek you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are weak. We ask that you strengthen us. And we ask that you would be glorified with the meditations of our hearts. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen.